Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. In this podcast, we talk a lot about what's going on in Dover. In order to better understand what's going on in the future, it's good to understand how we got here and understand the past. A great place to do that is the Woodman Museum here in Dover. Today, we're going to meet with Jonathan Nichols, the executive director of the Woodman Museum. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. I think it's always good to start with a baseline of who you are and what your background is. So if you could walk the listener through how you came to the Woodman Museum and what your background is, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, So grew up here in Dover, Um, moved here, I think around 95 with my my parents uh, from Mississippi and uh, went to Horn Street Elementary School, Dover Middle School, Dover High School, then went into the Coast Guard for six years, Uh, went all over the, the country with that and then came back. Uh, went to UNH for uh, history and started working at the Woodman Museum. I remember going there when I was, you know, in my third grade tours. And so I always knew about the Woodman Museum. I'd been there a couple times, loved the place. So once I started going for history uh, at UNH, I decided that's where I wanted to kind of help out, trying to apply my history degree. So I started volunteering there about five years ago. And then uh, Dave Tompkins, working for him, he uh, he left to go to back down to Boston. And so from there, the, the board asked if I would take his position. So here I am. Interesting. I'm curious, what did you focus on with your history degree? What was your specialization? Yeah, so um, I was more early American history. UNH was interesting because with a bachelor's, you don't really have a s- specific focus. You kind of go either American history, European history, Asian history. Um, so we kind of tailored my degree from early American history up until the, the Civil War. So I, I focused a lot on slavery, actually. Um, and had the opportunity to actually teach black and indigenous history um, as a TA with Alexis Broderick at UNH um, my senior year. Well, that really seems like a great fit for the museum and the collection it has. Can you tell us about the museum and how it came to be? Yeah, so uh, the Woodman Museum, founded in 1916 after the uh, death of Annie Woodman. She left $100,000 in her will to set up a museum that showcased art, history, and science. And so using that, uh, the trustees, the original trustees, uh, purchased her former home as well as the Hale House next door that was owned by Senator John Parker Hale. And then through donation uh, from Ellen Rounds, we got the dam garrison as well, built in 1675. And so that was the original campus, and then we've grown since, acquiring the Keefe House, which is now our Tom Hindle Gallery. I understand that he was on the uh, podcast a couple episodes back, so you know, named after him. That's also our office, our uh, Bob Whitehouse library, and our carriage barn. We've been called the most eclectic museum uh, in New Hampshire. We have a little bit of everything from uh, you know, a mineral room to a garrison built in the 1600s to uh, a crusader sword, a uh, cannon from the Civil War. You name it, we probably have it. I've been there, and you're right. It is a very eclectic, very diverse collection, and it's also a very engaging collection. It's a collection that has some hands-on elements, but also some hands-off elements, and they're both presented in a way that I think makes you want hands-on on everything as a, a viewer and a visitor. It's a, a great space to explore. I think so. I mean, we have a great volunteer, docent staff, some of the best, I think, and uh, they make it really interesting. So. The, the first house is all self-guided, but after that, the garrison, the Hale House, the Keefe House, and then our two uh, sheds, Canna Shed and the uh, Victorian Funeral Shed, uh, I think they make it really interesting for our guests. 
if I do my math right, which is borderline, $100,000 in 1916 would be about $3 million today. About there, yeah. So I'm guessing that that money is long, while it, it continues, I'm sure, to provide some of the revenue, uh, it's not your sole way of supporting yourself at the museum anymore, is it? Right. So uh, when we first started out in 1916, it was more of a trust. So they used half of it to purchase the homes and the, the rest of it went into funding an endowment for the museum. And they actually existed off of that for God, close to 80 years or so until uh, we decided to swap over to a 501c3 nonprofit. And uh, now we still have that, but we uh, pretty much exist off of grants, donations, sponsorships, things like that. Can people become members? Absolutely. We have a whole bunch of different uh, membership packages. There's a family, student, there's a sustainer membership, and then we are just launching our corporate membership as well to allow different businesses to get some free passes for uh, their employees. Oh, nice. And I think it's it's assumed because it's located downtown Dover that it is a Dover museum, but it's really, as you say, it's more of an eclectic, more of a diverse collection. There's things from all over the, the country, if not the world, correct? Correct. So um, the Hale House, the uh, first floor, that is kind of like a Dover space, but it's Dover related. So we have things from all over the world, even in there, items such as a a Japanese samurai suit of armor that was collected in the 1800s by Captain Washington Hardy from Dover. And so that's how we kind of tie it in there. But we have things uh, like Crusader's uh, chainmail armor that was found in, I think, France during World War I from a trench digger. And we have Alaskan animals. We have we have stuff from all over the world, really. One of the more popular, I know, or at least it was when I was in the third grade and went through, uh, would have been the uh, polar bear. Correct, yeah. The, the polar bear is one of those that everyone sort of remembers uh, when they they think back on the museum. I assume that's still the a focal point. It's still there. It's still right at the base of the uh, the main staircase in the Woodman House. That's a Nanook, our... 10-foot-tall polar bear that was shot by Richard Mathis in the late 60s. He actually went and hunted a whole bunch of different Alaskan animals, so we have a whole Alaskan animal collection, but that's that's probably the big one, the biggest one, absolutely. Um, but we have like an Alaskan gray wolf, some caribou, elk, things like that. If the building was on fire, and we don't want it to be on fire, but in an if situation, uh, what would you grab? What's the one thing that you would have to make sure, uh, or your calling out to someone to help you save if it's a two-person job okay um so i tell everyone that comes through uh, that my favorite item in the entire museum is a music box built in geneva switzerland it's about the size of an end table built uh, in 1860 it's one of the only few of its kind that still have all four of its original brass inserts and it's still playable so that's part of the uh, interactive element that you were talking about is uh, i still play it for uh, our guests that come through and it's it's definitely a treat to listen to. So is it the era? Is it the musicality? What is it about that, that music box that draws you in? bit of both, I would say. Me being kind of like an early American up to the Civil War, I love that era mm-hmm. itself. I actually do Civil War reenacting as a hobby. And the musicality, I guess, is something. Because, I mean, you go to a museum and everything's behind a case and you just get to look at it, read about it, but this, you actually get to experience it. And I I think that's something unique about that item is that you get to actually listen to the exact same music, the exact same way it was played as the people who owned it in the 1860s. One of the things about the museum that I think is, uh, is nice to see some expansion of your activities is the way that you've embraced Memorial Day. I attended the Memorial Day ceremony this year and you were in, in your uh, reenactment uh, outfit and it's really an impressive uh, display uh, between the orators that you brought in 
as well as your own uh, activities and, and the display. What brought that about? Yeah, so that's actually been going on um, since before I volunteered there. But that's actually the Civil War unit that I have been reenacting with for several years now. So I had the unique opportunity to not only continue our reenactment for the ceremony, but now kind of put it together and lead it. So uh, it was interesting trying to coordinate that because, you know, I had to go up and give the presentation, but at the same time, run back down and pull the cannon and then run back up and thank everyone for coming. And it was challenging, but it was fun. And uh, it's a it's a holiday that means a lot to me. Being a veteran myself, that's something that I want to do to give back. Nice. Now, when I want to go visit the museum, when are, when are you open and is it a year-round activity? So we're not year-round, but we are most of the year. So we're open from first week of April until the end of November. Um, and then we do a artisan fair from uh, November until December 23rd, but the rest of the museum is closed. Um, we're open Wednesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. until 5. We just ask that you're there by 3.30 because the tour itself takes about an hour and a half. Okay. So the 5 o'clock is more like an overflow time. Sure. So the intent is if you're going to come, make sure you come with enough time to really explore and, and get an in-depth look. It's not a drive-by. Exactly, yeah. Good. I mean, you can definitely come in and check it out. Uh, Like I said, the Woodman house is self-guided, but if you want to see the other houses after 3.30, it's just you don't have enough time. I've been there for five years, and there's still something new that I see every single day. There's just so much to see in in those buildings. Is there something that the the public, I know you mentioned the, the music box is your favorite item. Is there something that you consistently hear from people that they find to be the most intriguing or the most interesting draw? Well, certainly the garrison is one of them. I mean, it's one of the last few standing colonial garrisons in the country. It's uh, under a canopy, so I'm sure if you've driven by the Woodman Museum, you've seen that large white canopy between the two brick houses. So a lot of people don't even know that exists underneath there. And so uh, it's kind of like a big reveal when people walk in through the doors and there's a house within the house. So let's explain that. So the garrison is a settler's house essentially or is there more to it or less to it a little more to that it's uh, more of a fort um so when it was built in 1675 that was the height of king philip's war and dover itself at the time was called kachiko it was kind of like the northernmost point of the european colonies um at the time and uh so it was built with defense in mind um so it was built by John Dam for his son, William Dam, as a home for he and his new wife to live in. But at the same time, there's eight gun ports going around the house. The walls themselves are like a foot thick to block out any kind of gunfire. Um, and there would have been a large wooden palisade that went around the house as a first line of defense. And so various houses around that garrison would go there during uh, times of you know panic or something along that lines. And it wasn't located in the current location. It was brought to the museum at some point after 1916, correct? Correct. Um, It was originally down over by Back River, over where like Garrison Elementary School, Garrison Road, all that stuff. Hence why they're called what they are. Um, And then when it was donated by Ellen Rounds, it was carted here over the course of a week using a horse, a giant pulley system, and a bunch of logs. And uh, yeah, it took about a week to get here for the opening of the museum. Can you imagine what it would have been like to, to watch that come down the street at the time? I'm sure it would have been, you know, Something crazy to see, just a house slowly moving its way down Central Ave. But yeah. Well, the museum itself has a lot of exhibits, but you also do a lot of activities and a lot of events at the museum, mm-hmm. uh, from the concert series to in the past you've done car shows. What I think people are most drawn to this time of year is the collaboration in the cemetery. 
Yeah. That you do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So every year we do, uh, it's called Voices from the Cemetery. It's a two-day event over the Saturday and Sunday, usually the the one right before Halloween itself. Uh, so this year, the 22nd and 23rd. And uh, what we do is it's about an hour-long tour. It's a guided tour through the cemetery to about 15 different grave sites. And uh, there's actors who are volunteering their time, and uh, they are portraying the people that are buried there. So in the past, people have gotten to meet Henry Law, Annie Woodman, John Parker Hale, individuals like that. And so it's uh, it's probably our biggest event and uh, one we definitely love putting on every year. Last year, uh, was it last year when you did the video version? Uh, that would have been that 2020 is okay. when we did that. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that at that point, uh, my wife and I did a couple. Uh, we acted as a couple, and I think she decided that I'm not an actor. Uh, <laughs> so we have not volunteered since. But yeah. it was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of uh, – it was great to see the prep and the care you put into preparing and, and – uh, carrying through that event it's it's not a one-off or a hey let's get some friends together and put on a play it truly is a well thought out well directed and produced event well thank you yeah i was actually in that video too i was a uh, captain washington hardy so nice. Yeah. nice so you have that and then do you do something for veterans day which is uh, coming up soon after we do um so the sunday before veterans day is when we usually do some sort of event on the grounds in the past couple of years, we've done a whole bunch of reenactors from the Revolutionary War all the way up until I think about Vietnam is the latest we've gone. Um, and then there was kind of like a short ceremony. And the event itself was only about an hour, two hours long. We're looking to change that this year. So we're looking to expand that. Uh, we're still going to have the reenactors on the campus, um, but we're making it more focused on that, uh, the history of the U.S. military. And so what we're doing is we're going to have all the reenactors there from 10 to 4. Every hour on the half hour, we'll have some sort of performance. Um, so like a fife and drum corps uh, from the revolution will perform. We'll have some singers singing some old time uh, war songs, kind of like Bugle Boy, Company B, something yeah. along that lines. Uh, and then we'll have some vendors as well. I've already talked to uh, the the Navy, the Army, the Air National Guard, they're all coming. The Air National Guard is going to be bringing a trailer that is a kind of like a mobile command tower experience. So you get to actually experience what it's like to work in the command tower at Pease. Oh, wow. Um, so we're going to make it an all-day event. So instead of just showing up at noon and you might get to see something, if you show up anytime during the day, you'll get to experience something at least. Oh, that's great. And it's great to bring that experience of the museum out onto the grounds a little bit more and have some diversity of getting people to understand that the museum is much more than again just over history and exactly I, I think it's uh, it's a very interesting take on it any other events or activities that the listeners should know about yeah so uh, I mean we do something pretty much every month and so uh, depending on when this episode airs we'll have either just finished or uh, are about to finish up our, our art show for John Chevenel he's a watercolorist from the area uh, but we do art shows all throughout the year we'll have one uh, coming up that is Becca Lane. She's an acrylic painter. We also have Robert Roche going on at the exact same time, kind of filling out the whole gallery. Um, and then we do a speaker series as well. Uh, so we have a couple different speakers throughout the fall that uh, will come and give presentations on some aspect of history. So we'll have like Paul Timmerman, who's actually our chairman of the board, but he'll be giving a whole Civil War presentation. Kirk Dorsey giving a whole presentation on the Truman Doctrine. Uh, he's a professor and actually the head of uh, the history department at UNH. Oh, that's really fascinating. I understand when you said earlier that you went from a trust to a 501c3. I assume that means you have a board of directors and, and a volunteer group that are helping to support you and the other staff in the activities of the museum. Absolutely. Yeah, we have a 
Very dedicated board of uh, directors. Paul is our chairman. Some notable names probably are like Kathy Bowden. I'm sure everyone knows who Kathy is. Sure. Yeah, we have a whole bunch of different individuals uh, who give a lot of their time to help out. Um, and then volunteers as well. There's individuals that are there, you know, two, three days a week, every week. And so we wouldn't be able to exist without them. So they're, uh, they're very important to us. So if people want to learn more or if they want to volunteer, what's the best way for them to get involved or to learn more about the museum? Yeah, so we have a website. It's uh, www.woodmanmuseum.org. Brand new website, actually. Um, so just worked with Tap House Media to create a new one, uh, a little more modern. So we'll do regular postings there. We also have a Facebook, which is just Woodman Museum. Uh, Instagram, which is Visit Woodman Museum. And then uh, we actually have a TikTok as well. Uh, mm. So I've been trying to make some TikTok videos as well, which is also uh, Woodman Museum. Um, so we do regular postings on all three, as well as on the website. If you, you're interested in volunteering, you can you know go to the website or you can contact either uh, myself or Mike Day, who's our Director of Operations at uh, 603-742-1038. That's our, uh, that's our phone number. Well, that's all great information. We like to end the podcast by asking the guests to come up with three places, ideas, things that you think make Dover special or make Dover Dover. Uh, so if you have those three things, then I'm going to ask you to, to not cheat and name the Woodman Museum as one of the three things. <laughs> Darn, that was one of my, <laughs> not to sound biased, but yeah, um, well, definitely two giveaway, off the right? top of my, yeah. Two off the top of my head um, would be the Children's Museum. Uh, I mean, they are a huge huge draw to the uh, the town. Mm-hmm. Um, they do some fantastic work over there. And then the Strand Theater as well. Uh, I've been talking to Dan Demers a lot uh, recently about getting something going on over there between us and the Woodman. But since he's taken over that place, I mean, I remember going there to see movies as, yeah. as a kid. Uh, he's really revitalizing that place and uh, making it just another destination point for the, for the town. And so, uh, obviously, I'm going to focus on the uh, more of the attractions sure. here in uh, Dover. And so, I think that's those are the two of the biggest. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I like the synergy you, you've brought to both of those with the museum. I think it's a great connection point to say not only are they attractions, but they're vital attractions to the, the culture and the social aspects of the community. Exactly. So, appreciate you coming by today and uh, have a great day. All right. Thank you. You as well. Thanks. With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week. On September 27, 1911, workers at the Kachiko Print Works in downtown Dover received good news. The Print Works' massive complex of 15 buildings on 30 acres, boasting 130,000 spindles and producing 65 million yards of finished cloth each year, employed more than 2,000 people. Two years earlier, in 1909, the Kajiko Print Works had been purchased by the Pacific Mills Corporation in Lawrence, Massachusetts. After the purchase, which included the entire Kajiko Manufacturing Company, the word out of Lawrence indicated the company would move the operations in Dover to Massachusetts. But two years later, in 1911, there was hope Dover's print works would remain in the garrison city indefinitely. The Kajiko Print Works was the culmination of a rapid rise in calico printing that began in Dover in 1826 in mill number four of the Kajiko Manufacturing Company. What started out as block printing on cotton by hand in a single mill building quickly grew to meet the demand of the company's sought-after goods, growing into more than a dozen buildings and utilizing new technology, cylinder printing, to churn out printed cotton products around the clock. Prints from Dover were renowned worldwide for their quality. Unfortunately, the good news in September 1911 wouldn't last. 
Although the print works would remain in Dover, continuing to operate under the ownership of the Pacific Mills Corporation, just two years later, in 1913, the print works component of the mills was closed and torn down, and with it, a legacy of the textile manufacturing that began in the early 1800s. The sprawling print works complex, once torn down, would make way for what is now Henry Law Park. Competition from textile processors in the American South continued to batter northern textile operations, which were burdened by the high cost of heating the mills in the winter. The Great Depression would constrict the demand for northern textiles even more, which led the Pacific Mills Corporation to shutter the entire complex in 1937. The city purchased the remaining mill buildings of the Pacific Mills Corporation at auction in 1941. The mill buildings, though, would eventually become an economic success story, converting the old manufacturing space for commercial and residential use. The buildings are now owned by Chinberg Properties. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week.